0: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. CHAPTER FIVE OF TWELVE YEARS A SLAVE BY SOLOMON NORTHUP. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. AFTER WE WERE ALL ON BOARD, THE BRIG ORLEANS PROCEEDED DOWN JAMES RIVER. PASSING INTO CHESAPEAKE BAY, WE ARRIVED NEXT DAY OPPOSITE THE CITY OF NORFOLK. WHILE LYING AT ANCHOR, A LIGHTER APPROACHED US FROM THE TOWN, BRINGING FOUR MORE SLAVES. FREDERICK, A BOY OF eighteen, HAD BEEN BORN A SLAVE, as also had Henry, who was some years older. They had both been house-servants in the city. Maria was a rather genteel-looking colored girl, with a faultless form, but ignorant and extremely vain. The idea of going to New Orleans was pleasing to her. She entertained an extravagantly high opinion of her own attractions. Assuming a haughty mien, she declared to her companions— that immediately on our arrival in New Orleans she had no doubt some wealthy single gentleman of good taste would purchase her at once. But the most prominent of the four was a man named Arthur. As the lighter approached, he struggled stoutly with his keepers. It was with main force that he was dragged aboard the brig. He protested in a loud voice against the treatment he was receiving, and demanded to be released. His face was swollen and covered with wounds and bruises, and, indeed, one side of it was a complete raw sore. He was forced, with all haste, down the hatchway into the hold. I caught an outline of his story as he was born struggling along, of which he afterwards gave me a more full relation, and it was as follows. He had long resided in the city of Norfolk, and was a free man. He had a family living there, and was a mason by trade. Having been unusually detained, he was returning late one night to his house in the suburbs of the city, when he was attacked by a gang of persons in an unfrequented street. He fought until his strength failed him. Overpowered at last, he was gagged and bound with ropes, and beaten until he became insensible. For several days they secreted him in the slave-pen at Norfolk, a very common establishment, it appears, in the cities of the South. The night before he had been taken out and put on board the lighter, which, pushing out from shore, had awaited our arrival. For some time he continued his protestations, and was altogether irreconcilable. At length, however, he became silent. He sank into a gloomy and thoughtful mood, and appeared to be counseling with himself. There was in the man's determined face something that suggested the thought of desperation. After leaving Norfolk, the handcuffs were taken off, and during the day we were allowed to remain on deck. The captain selected Robert as his waiter, and I was appointed to superintend the cooking department and the distribution of food and water. I had three assistants, Jim, Cuffey, and Jenny. Jenny's business was to prepare the coffee, which consisted of cornmeal scorched in a kettle, boiled and sweetened with molasses. "'Jim and Cuffy baked the hoe-cake and boiled the bacon. "'Standing by a table, formed of a wide board resting on the heads of the barrels, "'I cut and handed to each a slice of meat and a dodger of the bread, "'and from Jenny's kettle also dipped out for each a cup of the coffee. "'The use of plates was dispensed with, "'and their sable fingers took the place of knives and forks. "'Jim and Cuffy were very demure and attentive to business.' somewhat inflated with their situation as second cooks, and without doubt feeling that there was a great responsibility resting on them. I was called steward, a name given me by the captain. The slaves were fed twice a day, at ten and five o'clock, always receiving the same kind and quantity of fare, and in the same manner as above described. At night we were driven into the hold, and securely fastened down. "'Scarcely were we out of sight of land "'before we were overtaken by a violent storm. "'The brig rolled and plunged "'until we feared she would go down. "'Some were seasick, "'others on their knees praying, "'while some were fast holding to each other, paralysed with fear. "'The seasickness rendered the place of our confinement "'loathsome and disgusting. "'It would have been a happy thing for most of us. "'It would have saved the agony of many hundred lashes "'and miserable deaths at last.' had the compassionate sea snatched us that day from the clutches of remorseless men. The thought of Randall and little Emmy sinking down among the monsters of the deep is a more pleasant contemplation than to think of them as they are now, perhaps, dragging out lives of unrequited toil. When in sight of the Bahama banks, at a place called Old Point Compass, or The Hole in the Wall, we were becalmed three days. There was scarcely a breath of air, the waters of the gulf presented a singularly white appearance, like lime-water. In the order of events, I come now to the relation of an occurrence which I never call to mind, but with sensations of regret. I thank God, who has since permitted me to escape from the thralldom of slavery, that through his merciful interposition I was prevented from imbruing my hands in the blood of his creatures. Let not those who have never been placed in like circumstances judge me harshly, until they have been chained and beaten, until they find themselves in the situation I was, borne away from home and family towards a land of bondage, let them refrain from saying what they would not do for liberty. How far I should have been justified in the sight of God and man, it is unnecessary now to speculate upon. It is enough to say that I am able to congratulate myself upon the harmless termination of an affair which threatened, for a time, TO BE ATTENDED WITH SERIOUS RESULTS. TOWARDS EVENING, ON THE FIRST DAY OF THE CALM, ARTHUR AND MYSELF WERE IN THE BOW OF THE VESSEL, SEATED ON THE windlass. WE WERE CONVERSING TOGETHER OF THE PROBABLE DESTINY THAT AWAITED US, AND MOURNING TOGETHER OVER OUR MISFORTUNES. ARTHUR SAID, AND I AGREED WITH HIM, THAT DEATH WAS FAR LESS TERRIBLE THAN THE LIVING PROSPECT THAT WAS BEFORE US. FOR A LONG TIME WE TALKED OF OUR CHILDREN, our past lives, and of the probabilities of escape. Obtaining possession of the brig was suggested by one of us. We discussed the possibility of our being able, in such an event, to make our way to the harbour of New York. I knew little of the compass, but the idea of risking the experiment was eagerly entertained. The chances, for and against us, in an encounter with the crew, was canvassed. Who could be relied upon, and who could not? The proper time and manner of the attack were all talked over, and over again. From the moment the plot suggested itself, I began to hope. I revolved it constantly in my mind. As difficulty after difficulty arose, some ready conceit was at hand, demonstrating how it could be overcome. While others slept, Arthur and I were maturing our plans. At length, with much caution, Robert was gradually made acquainted with our intentions. He approved of them at once, and entered into the conspiracy with a zealous spirit. There was not another slave we dared to trust. Brought up in fear and ignorance as they are, it can scarcely be conceived how servilely they will cringe before a white man's look. It was not safe to deposit so bold a secret with any of them, and finally we three resolved to take upon ourselves alone the fearful responsibility of the attempt. At night, as has been said, we were driven into the hold, and the hatch barred down. How to reach the deck was the first difficulty that presented itself. On the bow of the brig, however, I had observed the small boat lying bottom upwards. It occurred to me that by secreting ourselves underneath it, we would not be missed from the crowd as they were hurried down into the hold at night. I was selected to make the experiment in order to satisfy ourselves of its feasibility. The next evening, accordingly, after supper, watching my opportunity, I hastily concealed myself beneath it. Lying close upon the deck, I could see what was going on around me, while wholly unperceived myself. In the morning, as they came up, "'I slipped from my hiding-place without being observed. "'The result was entirely satisfactory. "'The captain and mate slept in the cabin of the former. "'From Robert, who had frequent occasion in his capacity of waiter, "'to make observations in that quarter, "'we ascertained the exact position of their respective berths. "'He further informed us that there were always two pistols and a cutlass lying on the table.' the crew's cook slept in the cook-galley on deck a sort of vehicle on wheels that could be moved about as convenience required while the sailors numbering only six either slept in the forecastle or in hammocks swung among the rigging finally our arrangements were all completed arthur and i were to steal silently to the captain's cabin seize the pistols and cutlass and as quickly as possible dispatch him and the mate robert with a club was to stand by the door leading from the deck down into the cabin, and, in case of necessity, beat back the sailors until we could hurry to his assistance. We were to proceed then as circumstances might require. Should the attack be so sudden and successful as to prevent resistance, the hatch was to remain barred down, otherwise the slaves were to be called up, and, in the crowd and hurry and confusion of the time, we resolved to regain our liberty or lose our lives. I was then to assume the unaccustomed place of pilot, and, steering northward, we trusted that some lucky wind might bear us to the soil of freedom. The mate's name was Biddy. The captain's I cannot now recall, though I rarely ever forget a name once heard. The captain was a small, genteel man, erect and prompt, with a proud bearing, and looked the personification of courage. If he is still living... "'and these pages should chance to meet his eye. "'He will learn a fact connected with the voyage of the brig "'from Richmond to New Orleans in 1841, "'not entered on his log-book. "'We were all prepared, "'and impatiently waiting an opportunity "'of putting our designs into execution, "'when they were frustrated by a sad and unforeseen event. "'Robert was taken ill. "'It was soon announced that he had the smallpox. "'He continued to grow worse.' and four days previous to our arrival in New Orleans, he died. One of the sailors sewed him in his blanket, with a large stone from the ballast at his feet, and then laying him on a hatchway, and elevating it with tackles above the railing, the inanimate body of poor Robert was consigned to the white waters of the gulf. We were all panic-stricken by the appearance of the smallpox the captain ordered lime to be scattered through the hold, and other prudent precautions to be taken. The death of Robert, however, and the presence of the malady, oppressed me sadly, and I gazed out over the great waste of waters with a spirit that was indeed disconsolate. An evening or two after Robert's burial, I was leaning on the hatchway near the forecastle, full of desponding thoughts, when a sailor in a kind voice asked me why I was so downhearted. The tone and manner of the man assured me, and I answered, because I was a freeman, and had been kidnapped. He remarked that it was enough to make any one downhearted, and continued to interrogate me until he learned the particulars of my whole history. He was evidently much interested in my behalf, and, in the blunt speech of a sailor, swore he would aid me all he could, if it split his timbers. I requested him to furnish me pen, ink, and paper, in order that I might write to some of my friends. He promised to obtain them, but how I could use them undiscovered was a difficulty. If I could only get into the forecastle while his watch was off, and the other sailors asleep, the thing could be accomplished. The small boat instantly occurred to me. He thought we were not far from the Belize, at the mouth of the Mississippi, and it was necessary that the letter be written soon, or the opportunity would be lost. Accordingly, by arrangement, I managed the next night to secrete myself again under the long-boat. His watch was off at twelve. I saw him pass into the forecastle, and in about an hour followed him. He was nodding over a table, half asleep, on which a sickly light was flickering, and on which also was a pen and sheet of paper. As I entered, he aroused... "'beckoned me to a seat beside him, "'and pointed to the paper. "'I directed the letter to Henry B. Northup of Sandy Hill, "'stating that I had been kidnapped, "'was then on board the Brig Orleans, "'bound for New Orleans, "'that it was then impossible for me "'to conjecture my ultimate destination, "'and requesting he would take measures to rescue me. "'The letter was sealed and directed, "'and Manning, having read it, "'promised to deposit it in the New Orleans post-office.' I hastened back to my place under the long-boat, and in the morning, as the slaves came up and were walking round, crept out unnoticed and mingled with them. My good friend, whose name was John Manning, was an Englishman by birth, and a noble-hearted, generous sailor as ever walked a deck. He had lived in Boston, was a tall, well-built man, about twenty-four years old, with a face somewhat pockmarked, but full of benevolent expression nothing to vary the monotony of our daily life occurred until we reached New Orleans. On coming to the levee, and before the vessel was made fast, I saw Manning leap on shore and hurry away into the city. As he started off, he looked back over his shoulder significantly, giving me to understand the object of his errand. Presently he returned, and, passing close by me, hunched me with his elbow, with a peculiar wink, as much as to say, "'It is all right.' The letter, as I have since learned, reached Sandy Hill. Mr. Northup visited Albany and laid it before Governor Seward, but, inasmuch as it gave no definite information as to my probable locality, it was not, at that time, deemed advisable to institute measures for my liberation. It was concluded to delay, trusting that a knowledge of where I was might eventually be obtained." A happy and touching scene was witnessed immediately upon our reaching the levee. Just as Manning left the brig, on his way to the post-office, two men came up and called aloud for Arthur. The latter, as he recognized them, was almost crazy with delight. He could hardly be restrained from leaping over the brig's side, and when they met soon after, he grasped them by the hand, and clung to them a long, long time. They were men from Norfolk, who had come on to New Orleans to rescue him. His kidnappers, they informed him, had been arrested, and were then confined in the Norfolk prison. They conversed a few moments with the captain, and then departed with the rejoicing Arthur. But in all the crowd that thronged the wharf, there was no one who knew or cared for me. Not one. No familiar voice greeted my ears, nor was there a single face that I had ever seen." Soon Arthur would rejoin his family, and have the satisfaction of seeing his wrongs avenged. My family, alas, should I ever see them more! There was a feeling of utter desolation in my heart, filling it with a despairing and regretful sense that I had not gone down with Robert to the bottom of the sea. Very soon traders and consignees came on board— one, a tall, thin faced man, with light complexion and a little bent, made his appearance with a paper in his hand. Birch's gang, consisting of myself, Eliza, and her children, Harry, Letty, and some others, who had joined us at Richmond, were consigned to him. This gentleman was Mr. Theophilus Freeman. Reading from his paper, he called, Platt. No one answered the name was called again and again but still there was no reply then Lassie was called then Eliza then Harry until the list was finished each one stepping forward as his or her name was called Captain, where's Platt? demanded Theophilus Freeman the captain was unable to inform him no one being on board answering to that name who shipped that nigger? he again inquired of the captain pointing to me "'Birch,' replied the captain. "'Your name is Platt. "'You answer my description. "'Why don't you come forward?' "'He demanded of me in an angry tone. "'I informed him that was not my name, "'that I had never been called by it, "'but that I had no objection to it as I knew of. "'Well, I will learn you your name,' said he, "'and so you won't forget it either, by God,' he added. Mr. Theophilus Freeman, by the way, was not a whit behind his partner, Birch, in the matter of blasphemy. On the vessel I had gone by the name of Steward, and this was the first time I had ever been designated as Platt, the name forwarded by Birch to his consignee. From the vessel I observed the chain-gang at work on the levee. We passed near them as we were driven to Freeman's slave-pen, this pen is very similar to goodins in richmond except the yard was enclosed by plank standing upright with ends sharpened instead of brick walls including us there were now at least fifty in this pen depositing our blankets in one of the small buildings in the yard and having been called up and fed we were allowed to saunter around the enclosure until night when we wrapped our blankets round us and laid down under the shed or in the loft or in the open yard, just as each one preferred. It was but a short time I closed my eyes that night. Thought was busy in my brain. Could it be possible that I was thousands of miles from home, that I had been driven through the streets like a dumb beast, that I had been chained and beaten without mercy, that I was even then herded with a drove of slaves, a slave myself? Were the events of the last few weeks realities indeed? or was I passing only through the dismal phases of a long, protracted dream? It was no illusion. My cup of sorrow was full to overflowing. Then I lifted up my hands to God, and in the still watches of the night, surrounded by the sleeping forms of my companions, begged for mercy on the poor, forsaken captive. To the Almighty Father of us all, the freeman and the slave, I poured forth the supplications of a broken spirit, imploring strength from on high to bear up against the burden of my troubles, until the morning light aroused the slumberers, ushering in another day of bondage. End of chapter 5 Chapter 21 of Twelve Years a Slave by Solomon Northup This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I am indebted to Mr. Henry B. Northup and others for many of the particulars contained in this chapter. The letter written by Bass, directed to Parker and Perry, and which was deposited in the post office in Marksville on the 15th day of August, 1852, arrived at Saratoga in the early part of September. Some time previous to this, Anne had removed to Glens Falls, Warren County, where she had charge of the kitchen in Carpenter's Hotel. She kept house, however, lodging with our children, and was only absent from them during such time as the discharge of her duties in the hotel required. Messrs. Parker and Perry, on receipt of the letter, forwarded it immediately to Anne. On reading it, the children were all excitement, and, without delay, hastened to the neighbouring village of Sandy Hill to consult Henry B. Northup, and obtain his advice and assistance in the matter. Upon examination, that gentleman found among the statutes of the state an act providing for the recovery of free citizens from slavery. It was passed May 14th, 1840, and is entitled, "...an act more effectually to protect the free citizens of this state from being kidnapped or reduced to slavery." It provides that it shall be the duty of the Governor, upon the receipt of satisfactory information that any free citizen or inhabitant of this State is wrongfully held in another State or territory of the United States, upon the allegation or pretense that such person is a slave, or by colour of any usage or rule of law is deemed or taken to be a slave, to take such measures to procure the restoration of such person to liberty as he shall deem necessary." and, to that end, he is authorised to appoint and employ an agent, and directed to furnish him with such credentials and instructions as will be likely to accomplish the object of his appointment. It requires the agent so appointed to proceed to collect the proper proof to establish the right of such person to his freedom, to perform such journeys, take such measures, institute such legal proceedings, etc., as may be necessary to return such person to this state, and charges all expenses incurred in carrying the Act into effect upon monies not otherwise appropriated in the Treasury. See Appendix A. It was necessary to establish two facts to the satisfaction of the Governor. First, that I was a free citizen of New York, and, secondly, that I was wrongfully held in bondage. As to the first point, there was no difficulty, all the older inhabitants in the vicinity being ready to testify to it. The second point rested entirely upon the letter to Parker and Perry, written in an unknown hand, and upon the letter penned on board the Brig Orleans, which, unfortunately, had been mislaid or lost. A memorial was prepared, directed to His Excellency Governor Hunt, setting forth her marriage, my departure to Washington City, the receipt of the letters, that I was a free citizen, and such other facts as were deemed important— and was signed and verified by anne accompanying this memorial were several affidavits of prominent citizens of sandy hill and fort edward corroborating fully the statements it contained and also a request of several well-known gentlemen to the governor that henry b northup be appointed agent under the legislative act on reading the memorial and affidavits his excellency took a lively interest in the matter and, on the 23rd day of November, 1852, under the seal of the State, constituted, appointed, and employed Henry B. Northup Esquire, an agent, with full power to effect my restoration, and to take such measures as would be most likely to accomplish it, and instructing him to proceed to Louisiana with all convenient dispatch. See Appendix B. The pressing nature of Mr. Northup's professional and political engagements delayed his departure until December on the fourteenth day of that month, he left Sandy Hill, and proceeded to Washington. The Honorable Pierre Soule, Senator in Congress from Louisiana, Honorable Mr. Conrad, Secretary of War, and Judge Nelson of the Supreme Court of the United States, upon hearing a statement of the facts, and examining his commission, and certified copies of the memorial and affidavits, furnished him with open letters to gentlemen in Louisiana, strongly urging their assistance in accomplishing the object of his appointment. Senator Soule especially interested himself in the matter, insisting, in forcible language, that it was the duty and interest of every planter in his state to aid in restoring me to freedom, and trusted the sentiments of honour and justice in the bosom of every citizen of the Commonwealth would enlist him at once in my behalf. Having obtained these valuable letters, Mr. Northup returned to Baltimore, and proceeded from thence to Pittsburgh. It was his original intention, under advice of friends at Washington, to go directly to New Orleans, and consult the authorities of that city. Providentially, however, on arriving at the mouth of Red River, he changed his mind. Had he continued on, he would not have met with Bass, in which case the search for me would probably have been fruitless. Taking passage on the first steamer that arrived, he pursued his journey up Red River, a sluggish winding stream flowing through a vast region of primitive forests and impenetrable swamps, almost wholly destitute of inhabitants. About nine o'clock in the forenoon, January 1st, 1853, he left the steamboat at Marksville, and proceeded directly to Marksville Courthouse, a small village four miles in the interior from the fact that the letter to Messrs. Parker and Perry was postmarked at Marksville, it was supposed by him that I was in that place or its immediate vicinity. On reaching this town, he at once laid his business before the Honorable John P. Waddill, a legal gentleman of distinction, and a man of fine genius and most noble impulses. After reading the letters and documents presented him, and listening to a representation of the circumstances under which I had been carried away into captivity— Mr. Waddill at once proffered his services, and entered into the affair with great zeal and earnestness. He, in common with others of like elevated character, looked upon the kidnapper with abhorrence. The title of his fellow parishioners and clients to the property which constituted the larger proportion of their wealth, not only depended upon the good faith in which slave sales were transacted, but he was a man in whose honourable heart emotions of indignation were aroused by such an instance of injustice." Marksville, although occupying a prominent position, and standing out in impressive italics on the map of Louisiana, is, in fact, but a small and insignificant hamlet. Aside from the tavern, kept by a jolly and generous boniface, the courthouse, inhabited by lawless cows and swine in the seasons of vacation, and a high gallows with its dissevered rope dangling in the air, there is little to attract the attention of the stranger." Solomon Northup was a name Mr. Waddill had never heard, but he was confident that if there was a slave bearing that appellation in Marksville or vicinity, his black boy Tom would know him. Tom was accordingly called, but in all his extensive circle of acquaintances there was no such personage. The letter to Parker and Perry was dated at Bayou Berth. At this place, therefore, the conclusion was, I must be sought." But here a difficulty suggested itself, of a very grave character indeed. Bayou Boeuf, at its nearest point, was twenty-three miles distant, and was the name applied to the section of country extending between fifty and a hundred miles, on both sides of that stream. Thousands and thousands of slaves resided upon its shores, the remarkable richness and fertility of the soil having attracted thither a great number of planters. The information in the letter was so vague and indefinite as to render it difficult to conclude upon any specific course of proceeding. It was finally determined, however, as the only plan that presented any prospect of success, that Northup and the brother of Waddill, a student in the office of the latter, would repair to the bayou, and, travelling up one side and down the other its whole length, inquire at each plantation for me. Mr. Waddill tendered the use of his carriage— and it was definitely arranged that they should start upon the excursion early Monday morning. It will be seen at once that this course, in all probability, would have resulted unsuccessfully. It would have been impossible for them to have gone into the fields and examined all the gangs at work. They were not aware that I was known only as Platt, and had they inquired of Epps himself, he would have stated truly that he knew nothing of Solomon Northup. The arrangement being adopted, however— There was nothing further to be done until Sunday had elapsed. The conversation between Messrs. Northup and Waddill, in the course of the afternoon, turned upon New York politics. "'I can scarcely comprehend the nice distinctions and shades of political parties in your state,' observed Mr. Waddill. "'I read of soft shells and hard shells, hunkers and barn burners, woolly heads and silver greys, and am unable to understand the precise difference between them.' "'Pray, what is it?' Mr. Northup, refilling his pipe, entered into quite an elaborate narrative of the origin of the various sections of parties, and concluded by saying there was another party in New York known as Free Soilers, or Abolitionists. "'You have seen none of those in this part of the country, I presume?' Mr. Northup remarked. "'Never, but one,' answered Waddell laughingly. "'We have one here in Marksville, an eccentric creature.' who preaches abolitionism as vehemently as any fanatic at the North. He is a generous, inoffensive man, but always maintaining the wrong side of an argument. It affords us a great deal of amusement. He is an excellent mechanic, and almost indispensable in this community. He's a carpenter. His name is Bass. Some further good-natured conversation was had at the expense of Bass's peculiarities, when Waddill all at once fell into a reflective mood, and asked for the mysterious letter again. "'Let me see. Let me see,' he repeated, thoughtfully to himself, running his eyes over the letter once more. "'Bayou Berth, August 15. August 15. Postmarked here. He that is writing for me,' "'Where did Bass work last summer?' he inquired, turning suddenly to his brother. His brother was unable to inform him, but, rising, left the office, and soon returned with the intelligence that Bass worked last summer somewhere on Bayou Berth. "'He is the man,' bringing down his hand emphatically on the table, "'who can tell us all about Solomon Northup!' exclaimed Waddell. Bass was immediately searched for, but could not be found." After some inquiry, it was ascertained he was at the landing on Red River. Procuring a conveyance, young Waddill and Northup were not long in traversing the few miles to the latter place. On their arrival, Bass was found, just on the point of leaving, to be absent a fortnight or more. After an introduction, Northup begged the privilege of speaking to him privately a moment. They walked together towards the river, when the following conversation ensued. "'Mr. Bass,' "'said Northup. "'Allow me to ask you if you were on Bayou Berth last August.' "'Yes, sir, I was there in August,' was the reply. "'Did you write a letter for a coloured man at that place to some gentleman in Saratoga Springs?' "'Excuse me, sir, if I say that is none of your business,' answered Bass, "'stopping and looking his interrogator searchingly in the face. "'Perhaps I am rather hasty, Mr. Bass. "'I beg your pardon.' But I have come from the state of New York to accomplish the purpose the writer of a letter dated the 15th of August, postmarked at Marksville, had in view. Circumstances have led me to think that you are perhaps the man who wrote it. I am in search of Solomon Northup. If you know him, I beg you to inform me frankly where he is, and I assure you the source of any information you may give me shall not be divulged, if you desire it not to be.' A long time Bass looked his new acquaintance steadily in the eyes, without opening his lips. He seemed to be doubting in his own mind if there was not an attempt to practice some deception upon him. Finally, he said, deliberately, I have done nothing to be ashamed of. I am the man who wrote the letter. If you have come to rescue Solomon Northup, I am glad to see you. When did you last see him, and where is he? Northup inquired i last saw him christmas a week ago to-day he is the slave of edwin epps a planter on bayou berth near holmesville he is not known as solomon northup he is called platt the secret was out the mystery was unravelled through the thick black cloud amid whose dark and dismal shadows i had walked twelve years broke the star that was to light me back to liberty all mistrust and hesitation were soon thrown aside and the two men conversed long and freely upon the subject uppermost in their thoughts. Bass expressed the interest he had taken in my behalf, his intention of going north in the spring, and declaring that he had resolved to accomplish my emancipation, if it were in his power. He described the commencement and progress of his acquaintance with me, and listened with eager curiosity to the account given him of my family, and the history of my early life. Before separating, he drew a map of the bayou on a strip of paper, with a piece of red chalk, showing the locality of Epps' plantation, and the road leading most directly to it. Northup and his young companion returned to Marksville, where it was determined to commence legal proceedings to test the question of my right to freedom. I was made plaintiff, Mr. Northup acting as my guardian, and Edwin Epps' defendant. The process to be issued was in the nature of replevin, "'directed to the sheriff of the parish, "'commanding him to take me into custody, "'and detain me until the decision of the court. "'By the time the papers were duly drawn up, "'it was twelve o'clock at night, "'too late to obtain the necessary signature of the judge, "'who resided some distance out of town. "'Further business was therefore suspended until Monday morning. "'Everything, apparently, was moving along swimmingly, "'until Sunday afternoon,' when waddill called at northup's room to express his apprehension of difficulties they had not expected to encounter bass had become alarmed and had placed his affairs in the hands of a person at the landing communicating to him his intention of leaving the state this person had betrayed the confidence reposed in him to a certain extent and a rumour began to float about the town that the stranger at the hotel who had been observed in the company of lawyer waddill was after one of old Epps's slaves, over on the bayou. Epps was known at Marksville, having frequent occasion to visit that place during the session of the courts, and the fear entertained by Mr. Northup's adviser was that intelligence would be conveyed to him in the night, giving him an opportunity of secreting me before the arrival of the sheriff. This apprehension had the effect of expediting matters considerably. The sheriff, who lived in one direction from the village, Was requested to hold himself in readiness immediately after midnight, while the judge was informed he would be called upon at the same time. It is but justice to say that the authorities at Marksville cheerfully rendered all the assistance in their power. As soon after midnight as bail could be perfected and the judge's signature obtained, a carriage containing Mr. Northup and the sheriff. "'driven by the landlord's son, rolled rapidly out of the village of Marksville on the road towards Bayou Boeuf. "'It was supposed that Epps would contest the issue involving my right to liberty, "'and it therefore suggested itself to Mr. Northup that the testimony of the sheriff, "'describing my first meeting with the former, might perhaps become material on the trial.' It was accordingly arranged during the ride that, before I had an opportunity of speaking to Mr. Northup, the sheriff should propound to me certain questions agreed upon, such as the number and names of my children, the name of my wife before marriage, of places I knew at the north, and so forth. If my answers corresponded with the statements given him, the evidence must necessarily be considered conclusive. At length, shortly after Epps had left the field, with the consoling assurance that he would soon return and warm us, as was stated in the conclusion of the preceding chapter, they came in sight of the plantation, and discovered us at work. Alighting from the carriage, and directing the driver to proceed to the great house, with instructions not to mention to any one the object of their errand until they met again, Northup and the sheriff turned from the highway, and came towards us across the cotton-field. We observed them, on looking up at the carriage, "'one several rods in advance of the other. "'It was a singular and unusual thing "'to see white men approaching us in that manner, "'and especially at that early hour in the morning, "'and Uncle Abram and Patsy made some remarks "'expressive of their astonishment. "'Walking up to Bob, the sheriff inquired, "'Where's the boy they call Platt?' "Thar he is, Massa,' answered Bob, "'pointing to me and twitching off his hat. "'I wondered to myself what business "'he could possibly have with me, and, turning round, gazed at him until he had approached within a step. During my long residence on the bayou, I had become familiar with the face of every planter within many miles. But this man was an utter stranger. Certainly I had never seen him before. "'Your name is Platt, is it?' he asked. "'Yes, master,' I responded. Pointing towards Northup, standing a few rods distant, he demanded, "'Do you know that man?' I looked in the direction indicated, and, as my eyes rested on his countenance, a world of images thronged my brain, a multitude of well-known faces, Anne's and the dear childrens, and my old dead fathers, all the scenes and associations of childhood and youth, all the friends of other and happier days, appeared and disappeared, flitting and floating like dissolving shadows before the vision of my imagination, until, at last, the perfect memory of the man recurred to me, and, throwing up my hands towards heaven, I exclaimed, in a voice louder than I could utter in a less exciting moment, "'Henry B. Northup! Thank God! Thank God!' In an instant I comprehended the nature of his business, and felt that the hour of my deliverance was at hand. I started towards him, but the sheriff stepped before me. "'Stop a moment,' said he. "'Have you any other name than Platt?' "'Solomon Northup is my name, master,' I replied. "'Have you a family?' he inquired. "'I had a wife and three children. "'What were your children's names? "'Elizabeth, Margaret, and Alonzo. "'And your wife's name before her marriage? "'Anne Hampton. "'Who married you? "'Timothy Eddy of Fort Edward. "'Where does that gentleman live?' "'Again pointing to Northup, "'who remained standing in the same place "'where I had first recognized him.' "'He lives in Sandy Hill, Washington County, New York,' was the reply. He was proceeding to ask further questions, but I pushed past him, unable longer to restrain myself. I seized my old acquaintance by both hands. I could not speak. I could not refrain from tears. "'Sol,' he said at length, "'I'm glad to see you.' I essayed to make some answer, but emotion choked all utterance, and I was silent.' the slaves, utterly confounded, stood gazing upon the scene, their opening mouths and rolling eyes indicating the utmost wonder and astonishment. For ten years I had dwelt among them, in the field and in the cabin, borne the same hardships, partaken the same fare, mingled my griefs with theirs, participated in the same scanty joys. Nevertheless, not until this hour, the last I was to remain among them, had the remotest suspicion of my true name or the slightest knowledge of my real history been entertained by any one of them. Not a word was spoken for several minutes, during which time I clung fast to Northup, looking up into his face, fearful I should awake and find it all a dream. Throw down that sack, Northup added finally. Your cotton-picking days are over. Come with us to the man you live with. I obeyed him, and, walking between him and the sheriff, we moved towards the great house. It was not until we had proceeded some distance that I had recovered my voice sufficiently to ask if my family were all living. He informed me he had seen Anne, Margaret, and Elizabeth, but a short time previously, that Alonzo was also living, and all were well. My mother, however, I could never see again. As I began to recover in some measure from the sudden and great excitement which so overwhelmed me, I grew faint and weak, insomuch it was with difficulty I could walk. The sheriff took hold of my arm and assisted me, or I think I should have fallen. As we entered the yard, Epps stood by the gate, conversing with the driver. That young man, faithful to his instructions, was entirely unable to give him the least information in answer to his repeated inquiries of what was going on. By the time we reached him, he was almost as much amazed and puzzled as Bob or Uncle Abram. Shaking hands with the sheriff, and receiving an introduction to Mr. Northup, he invited them into the house, ordering me, at the same time, to bring in some wood. It was some time before I succeeded in cutting an armful, having, somehow, unaccountably lost the power of wielding the axe with any manner of precision. When I entered with it at last, The table was strewn with papers, from one of which Northup was reading. I was probably longer than necessity required in placing the sticks upon the fire, being particular as to the exact position of each individual one of them. I heard the words, the said Solomon Northup, and, the deponent further says, and, free citizen of New York, repeated frequently and from these expressions understood that the secret I had so long retained from Master and Mistress Epps was finally developing. I lingered as long as prudence permitted, and was about leaving the room, when Epps inquired, "'Platt, do you know this gentleman?' "'Yes, Master,' I replied. "'I have known him as long as I can remember.' "'Where does he live?' "'He lives in New York.' "'Did you ever live there?' "'Yes, Master. Born and bred there.' "'You was free, then?' "'Now, you damned nigger!' he exclaimed. "'Why did you not tell me that when I bought you?' "'Master Epps,' I answered, in a somewhat different tone "'than the one in which I had been accustomed to address him. "'Master Epps, you did not take the trouble to ask me. "'Besides, I told one of my owners, the man that kidnapped me, "'that I was free, and was whipped almost to death for it. "'It seems there's been a letter written for you by somebody. "'Now, who is it?' he demanded authoritatively. I made no reply. "'I say, who wrote that letter?' he demanded again. "'Perhaps I wrote it myself,' I said. "'You haven't been to Marksville post-office and back before light, I know.' He insisted upon my informing him, and I insisted I would not. He made many vehement threats against the man, whoever he might be, and intimated the bloody and savage vengeance he would wreak upon him when he found him out.' His whole manner and language exhibited a feeling of anger towards the unknown person who had written for me, and of fretfulness at the idea of losing so much property. Addressing Mr. Northup, he swore if he had only had an hour's notice of his coming, he would have saved him the trouble of taking me back to New York, that he would have run me into the swamp, or some other place out of the way, where all the sheriffs on earth couldn't have found me. I walked out into the yard and was entering the kitchen door, when something struck me in the back. Aunt Phoebe, emerging from the back door of the great house with a pan of potatoes, had thrown one of them with unnecessary violence, thereby giving me to understand that she wished to speak to me a moment confidentially. Running up to me, she whispered in my ear with great earnestness, "'Laura, mighty Platt, what do you think? Dem two men come after you. Heard them tell Massa you free!' Got wife and three children back there where you come from, going with them? Fool if you don't. Wish I could go. And Aunt Phoebe ran on in this manner at a rapid rate. Presently, Mistress Epps made her appearance in the kitchen. She said many things to me, and wondered why I had not told her who I was. She expressed her regret, complimenting me by saying she had rather lose any other servant on the plantation. "'Had Patsy that day stood in my place, the measure of my mistress' joy would have overflowed. "'Now there was no one left who could mend a chair or a piece of furniture, "'no one who was of any use about the house, no one who could play for her on the violin, "'and Mistress Epps was actually affected to tears. "'Epps had called to Bob to bring up his saddle-horse. "'The other slaves, also, overcoming their fear of the penalty, had left their work and come to the yard.' They were standing behind the cabins, out of sight of Epps. They beckoned me to come to them, and, with all the eagerness of curiosity, excited to the highest pitch, conversed with and questioned me. If I could repeat the exact words they uttered, with the same emphasis, if I could paint their several attitudes and the expression of their countenances, it would be indeed an interesting picture. In their estimation, I had suddenly arisen to an immeasurable height, had become a being of immense importance. The legal papers having been served, and arrangements made with Epps to meet them the next day at Marksville, Northup and the sheriff entered the carriage to return to the latter place. As I was about mounting to the driver's seat, the sheriff said I ought to bid Mr. and Mrs. Epps good-bye. I ran back to the piazza where they were standing, and, taking off my hat, said, Goodbye, bye Mrs.' "'Good-bye, Platt,' said Mrs. Epps kindly. "'Good-bye, Master.' "'Ugh, you damned nigger,' muttered Epps in a surly, malicious tone of voice. "'You needn't feel so cussed-tickled. "'You ain't gone yet. "'I'll see about this business at Marksville tomorrow.' "'I was only a nigger and knew my place, "'but felt as strongly as if I had been a white man "'that it would have been an inward comfort "'had I dared to have given him a parting kick. "'On my way back to the carriage, "'Patsy ran from behind a cabin and threw her arms about my neck.' "'Oh, Platt!' she cried, tears streaming down her face. "'You're going to be free! "'You're going way off yonder where we'll never see you any more! "'You saved me a good many whippings, Platt. "'I'm glad you're going to be free. "'But, oh, dear Lord, dear Lord, what'll become of me?' "'I disengaged myself from her and entered the carriage. "'The driver cracked his whip and away we rolled. "'I looked back and saw Patsy, with drooping head, half reclining on the ground mrs epps was on the piazza uncle abram and bob and wiley and aunt phoebe stood by the gate gazing after me i waved my hand but the carriage turned a bend of the bayou hiding them from my eyes forever. we stopped a moment at carey's sugar house where a great number of slaves were at work such an establishment being a curiosity to a northern man epps dashed by us on horseback at full speed "'on the way, as we learn next day, to the pine woods "'to see William Ford, who had brought me into the country. "'Tuesday, the 4th of January, Epps and his counsel, "'the Honourable H. Taylor, Northup, Waddill, "'the judge and sheriff of Avoyel, and myself, "'met in a room in the village of Marksville. "'Mr. Northup stated the facts in regard to me, "'and presented his commission, and the affidavits accompanying it. "'The sheriff described the scene in the cotton-fields, "'I was also interrogated at great length. "'Finally, Mr. Taylor assured his client that he was satisfied, "'and that litigation would not only be expensive, but utterly useless. "'In accordance with his advice, a paper was drawn up and signed by the proper parties, "'wherein Epps acknowledged he was satisfied of my right to freedom, "'and formally surrendered me to the authorities of New York. "'It was also stipulated that it be entered of record in the recorder's office of Avoyel.' Appendix C. Mr Northup and myself immediately hastened to the landing, and, taking passage on the first steamer that arrived, were soon floating down Red River, up which, with such desponding thoughts, I had been born twelve years before. End of chapter 21. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire! Huh?